Number one, God's Mission, fourth quarter, 2023. John Pauline. Arthur, who is in England now, but originally from Zimbabwe, is going to offer our prayer. Thank you, Arthur. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you at this point in time. We are thankful, Lord, for all the blessings that you've been giving us. We are thankful also, Lord, for this opportunity for us to gather while we're in different places, you have given us the blessing of technology for us to be able to convene and share these discussions about your word, about your love, about your character. We are inviting your Holy Spirit, therefore, that he may be amongst us. May you please use us. Help us, Lord, to think deeply about these matters that we'll be talking about. And we're hoping that at the end of it all, Lord, we would experience your blessings and that our lives may be transformed. We ask all this in the loving name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. We are starting a brand new series of studies. And this is the fourth quarter of 2023, and the title of the study is God's Mission, My Mission. And so in short form, we can just call it Mission. And this is another one of those quarterly studies that is written by a group rather than a single person. And the authors of the lesson this quarter are the directors of the Global Mission Centers of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. And for those who are not familiar with that, the Global Mission Centers, there are six of them, and they are overseen by the General Conference, but they're located around the world. And I have them in your handout, but we'll just go through them briefly. They include the Center for East Asian Religions, which covers Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, and Shinto, the uniquely Japanese religion. Then there's the Center for South Asian Religions, Hinduism, Jainism, Sikhism, the Global Center for Adventist-Muslim Relations, the World Jewish Adventist Fellowship Center, the Global Mission Urban Center. In other words, recognizing that reaching the cities is sort of a unique challenge in today's world. And then finally, the Center for Secular and Post-Christian Mission. And I happen to be someone who's invited to the center directors meetings once a year. And they tend to meet in one of these locations to experience something of the challenges. And one of these was in Madrid, Spain. And that was the secular postmodern mission. And it was interesting to see a church there that was aimed at reaching the city's young people. And it was truly young people. Those of us on the committee were all the old ones in the congregation. It was a very exciting experiment there. And then we had a meeting just a couple months ago in Tokyo because of the unique challenges of ministry in a non-Christian culture and uh, got to see a delightful experience. We went to a, a local Adventist church and in the afternoon, the pastor put on a bunny costume and all the kids of the neighborhood came pouring in. They cleared the sanctuary of you know benches and chairs and everything like that. And they were playing kickball and stuff. And the pastor was refereeing. And it was very, very evident that the kids felt very much at home. And he explained to us beforehand that the reason he does this is they recognize the church was getting old, that younger Japanese don't relate to churches. They see them as scary places that they won't go into. And there's just no way you're going to reach the people in that culture unless you reach them early. And he said, these children will remember the church as a positive place. And later on, they may be willing to consider it, et cetera. So, you know, this is innovative mission. That's what that was all about. So we're excited to have been a part of that. And I think next year is Calcutta, India. So it's very, very interesting to be exposed to different parts of the world. How did I get on it? Well, I direct the Center for Understanding World Religions at Loma Linda University. And so it's a natural fit for me to learn and share with that group. There's a bit of a history to this. In the 1980s, the General Conference put together a committee on secularism. For the first 100 to 150 years of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the mission was growing the church. Or to use a military metaphor, it was growing the army by which you hope to conquer the world, so to speak. So the focus was on growing the church. The problem was 
increasingly that growth was coming from narrower and narrower constituencies. And there were large parts of the world where no growth was taking place at all. And those were particularly the secular cultures. So the church began to realize in the 1980s, we have a serious problem. And so the Committee on Secularism was put together. And I had the privilege of being a part of that. And at the end of that decade, the 1980s, President Neil Wilson, the father of the current president, he proposed a global mission, the idea of moving from bringing people into the church to going out where they are and connecting with them in their context. And so the committee was a committee or center, you know, for secularism was one group and the Muslim one started a bit later and the Jewish one. So it was over a period of time that the church began to realize that the traditional approach wasn't working. So we need to be going out and connecting with people where they are and meeting them in their context. So reaching the unreached has become a much higher priority compared to growing the church it was the previous approach. Number two, when it comes to mission, we're really talking about two different things. There is mission in the global sense in which people from one culture and place reach out to people of another culture and place. But there's also a local side to mission, reaching out to one's neighbors and friends with the good news about God. Sometimes our neighbors are very similar to us. Sometimes there are as many cultural differences as one might experience going overseas. So local mission today in a world where everybody's kind of mixing together like never before in history. In the past, usually nations would be one culture, one language, one people group, but increasingly people are all mixing together all over the world. And Southern California, it's almost like Northern Mexico. On the other hand, you go to Mexico and it's almost like Southern California because there's so many Americans living in Mexico <laughs> near the border and so many Mexicans living in America near the border. That's a border situation. So this idea of multicultural ministry is now at our doorstep. So it's good that we all, I think, learn about uh, these kinds of things. The bottom line this quarter, Christians talk about mission a lot, but most don't have any idea where to actually start. Do you think that's true? You know, you know that we're supposed to reach our neighbors, whatever, but how do you actually do that? How do you get started is a question. So this quarter's lesson will focus more locally and offer practical guidance on how to be more involved with God in mission. Mission is not only about God, it's also with God. So that's sort of a quick summary of what the entire lesson is about. And number three, we are told that Thursday's lesson each week will offer a progression of practical challenges to encourage participation in God's mission. And I'd encourage you to pay attention to those as we go through them and see if any of them might actually be something that you would want to attend to. So how to participate in the neighborhoods where we live. Where do you start? And so in this first lesson, we're going to get some very, very basic instruction in how to reach our neighbors. So if anyone has a comment on that, you're welcome to share. Otherwise, we move ahead to number four in our lesson. Does mission finds its origin and purpose only in God? So the quarter begins with two lessons entitled God's mission to us. So we think of mission as we are reaching out to others, but the lesson starts, the quarter starts with God's mission to us. So it says, read Genesis 3, 9. If we think of this as the first mission encounter, what can we learn about mission from the way God dealt with Adam and Eve here? So perhaps, Terry, if you would read Genesis 3, verse 9, what can we learn about mission from this verse? But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Very simple. What does that have to do with mission? Well, obviously, God came to them. God was calling to them. So as you think about mission to our neighbors, what would you take from that? What can you learn from what God does here? All right, Ashley. Yeah, I just finished a little book by John Lennox talking about this subject. And he came to the conclusion the best way to start a conversation is by asking questions. And that's what God did 
here in this example. So he doesn't start with four steps to eternal life. Right. Starts with a question. Interesting. Okay. Good observation. Alyssa? Not only did he do that, but he went seeking for them. They didn't go seeking for God, but he went seeking. So he went to where they were. All right. The lesson draws out three points here. What it sees in this verse is, first of all, intentionality on God's part. God wasn't just out for a stroll and says, oh, I think Adam and Eve live here. Let me check in. No, God is intentional. God intended to move toward them, and he does that. He's intentional about it. He makes a move, and then he asks a question. So how would you apply that to, say, reaching out to neighbors? Is that going to happen if you don't intend it to happen? And why ask questions? What is the purpose of doing that? Arthur? I'm trying to struggle with this notion that we have to intend to reach out to our neighbors. More so right now that I'm in England, where I think I find that maybe this is just a generalization. I find that the culture is a bit distant. You, you are not expected to encroach on people's spaces. So I find it a bit difficult. Then maybe I think of in Acts where Philip, I'm sure, is told by the spirit, I would think, to go to a particular place where there is someone already waiting for Philip to come. If I had a choice, I would choose the latter to say I would want a situation where I'm told to go to a person who is already expecting me to come, than maybe to approach someone and they do not want me to say anything to them. Do you find that in England these days, that intentionality can backfire? You're sort of backing away from that word just a little bit. Does intentionality sometimes, is it counterproductive in England, do you think? I might be wrong. I would think so. But currently, it's not possible for me to talk to my neighbors, for example. But back home, I'm expected to greet every person that I just come across. Hi, good afternoon, good evening. We can have a conversation from there. But here, for some reason, no one greets anyone. You just sit next to someone in the bus and you are not expected to say anything to them. So even when I have that intentionality, I say to people and I just pray in my heart and say, God, just give me a way of saying. But I just feel like it's difficult for me to just maybe start a conversation out of the blue because I don't know how they would react. So is it frowned upon to smile at someone on the bus? Well, I'm a bit careful. I think it's fear of a culture that I do not know because I don't know what they would interpret my smiling to be. I remember the other time I was reaching into my pocket to get, uh, I don't know what I was getting, but for some reason, because I was reaching on my pocket, I tended to lean towards the person that was sitting next to me and I could see their discomfort when I was leaning next to them. Then I quickly had to sit up straight. You know, maybe <laughs> maybe it's me who is very sensitive, who is maybe afraid to offend people in a new culture. But probably people who live here, they know the culture and they know how best to talk to people in England. John and Rita, I'm just going to call on you because I think you're representing a similar culture. Now, Arthur's speaking for London, I believe. Where you are, is his report, is that similar to what you experience or are things a little different where you are? It's a bit different in the north. I've spent some time in London. It is the most, say, insular. Everybody is insular. It's very difficult. There isn't any sharing. You come up to the north, into Newcastle, the generally the feeling is the culture is more welcoming and people aren't nearly as afraid to enter into a conversation. When we went to Liverpool as visitors just for a weekend city break, we stood looking at a map and lots of people would come up to you and say, can I help? So the North is far different from the South. Fascinating. Now here we're talking about the same culture, the same country, same language, and yet you have to operate quite differently. And that's the whole point of mission. In today's multicultural world, it's more complex than ever. And the idea that one set of lessons, one set of sermons, a one approach is going to work for everyone in every place. It's very clear that that's not the way things work anymore. So while it's challenging, 
It's also an adventure, isn't it? Because you have no idea where things are going. And so I find mission in a variety of cultures to be a great adventure. Lou. I was born and raised till I started academy in Southern California. And when I started high school, we had to move clear back to Washington, D.C. And I was used to walking along the streets, friendly back in those days, carefree, smiling and engaging. And when we moved to D.C., I encountered if you walk down the street and smile, people would look at me like, what's the matter with you? <laughs> and I know Michael has mentioned moving from Loma Linda area back to wherever he is, the difference even in our own churches of the culture and everything. But I think that in spite of culture, resistance and intolerance and everything else, the Holy Spirit is working. And if we pray for divine appointments and we start our day and throughout the day with God and be filled with the Holy Spirit, he will bring us into contact. And sometimes it's just a smile. Sometimes it's more than that or engaging, but we have to rely on the Holy Spirit for that input because only he knows the hearts out there. I don't know anybody's heart and he knows what they need and he'll connect us if it's something that he wants to do through me. All right. Thank you. Michael. For many years, I was involved in ministry of University Church in Loma Linda called Excel. It was a tutoring mentoring program of the church, and it was for tutoring and mentoring inner city kids, primarily in San Bernardino area, who were having difficulty in school and helped them improve their scholastic averages. And it was a program that was approved by the school district. So we were cautioned very strongly, do not try to talk religion to these kids. If they ask you a question, you can answer it honestly, but please don't try to evangelize because the school district will not tolerate that. And it was an interesting mix to see because there was a program called the Cardinal Academy at San Bernardino High School. And tutoring some of those kids, it was really one culture confronting another one because most of our tutors were people who were very well-educated I remember I tutored a young boy who was failing. He was a junior in high school, and I was appalled at some of the level of his instruction. And I'm not saying it was the fault of the school district or the school itself, but rather just where he was. And I was watching this contact of one culture with another culture and how they intermixed. But what amazed me more than anything else is how well, once the connection was made, They were able to fit together and communicate and accomplish. And we had some great success stories. Just, I remember one young lady who was a member of a gang. She was a sophomore in high school. She was failing at everything. She ended up graduating with honors from high school and then went to La Sierra University. Mm. Just stunning examples like that. Nice narrative there. Thank you. John and Rita? I'm just coming back to that verse. and. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? To me, this is a very different sort of mission. God here was speaking, was calling to a couple who he had up until that day had an intimate relationship with. And our mission is to people who have not had that intimate relationship with God and have gone away largely. So if you had written the lesson, you probably wouldn't have used this as the first verse. Correct. In context, you're thinking of that, well, that's sort of a reconnecting between people who knew each other, whereas you're seeing mission. On the other hand, though, can't mission be to somebody, to a brother or a sister? Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying that it doesn't fit, but it fits in a very specific situation. I mean, I think perhaps actually one of the things that we're least best at is reaching out to people who have left a church or no longer go and actually attend a church building, a church community. John and I haven't been in the church that we, well, that John grew up with for a good number of years for various reasons. And not once in all of those years has anybody from that community, being in touch with us to find out why. So mission can be reconnecting with somebody who you haven't seen in a while as well. 
Yeah. So I think this quarter is going to raise a lot of interesting questions, and uh, hopefully we will all have a, a better handle on this uh, at the end. Rodney, I'm looking at you. As I was reading this verse, Genesis 3, verse 9, the Lord God called Adam and said to them, where are thou? I see here the principle of reaching out intentionally. But at the same time, I am seeing that the context matters as a Christian. It is a priority for us to know the context. For instance, here, where I'm living in Asia, Southeast Asia, in the Philippines, that the context is of shame and honor. So even though people are struggling, they will not tell you. So you need to build some rapport some friendship. I had a shock of my life when I first come to the Philippines to study in Mountain View College. And I can understand um, how the Sibada. But here, it's completely quite the opposite, like night and day. I arrived in Mountain View College and the first day when I was walking down to the cafeteria, I met a group of young people who came and approached me when I was walking and they say, hi, how are you? Where are you going? <laughs> so for me, in where I live, those are the questions that our close friend ask. So out of the blue, I got up and say, why do you want to know the details of my whereabouts? <laughs> so I came back and I intentionally decided that instead of staying with my friends, my foreigners' friends from uh, Ethiopia, Ghana, and uh, Papua New Guinea. I decided to move to a dorm, a room, an apartment where all the Filipinos were there. There I found out that they did not want to know where I was going, actually. They just showing a gesture to start a conversation. They're not interested in the detail, but that is the way they greet. And I found out that if somebody asks you here where you are going, if you are going a short distance, you just move your lips like this. It's like you are going a short distance. But if you are going a longer distance, you move your lips a little bit pointed and like this. So <laughs> the next day around, I knew that. And when I asked, hey, my brother, they asked, hey, my brother, where are you going? I just went like this. And the conversation was over. So I can see the difference and the culture factors into it. I would say here in the Philippines, I think the culture of their friendliness can be taken into consideration in reaching out. Our friendship evangelism can be very effective here. Once you are a friend of them, they can really open up and then you can ask questions when you identify their needs. Thank you. One thing I would say from my experience in New York City, people have a hard shell. You are encountering, uh, just if you're looking out the window, you will see 100 people a minute passing by your window. If you're walking down the street, you're bumping into one or 200 every minute. Everyone looks stressed. Everyone has this look of you know, stress on their face, et cetera. Everyone is going somewhere. Just to stop and have a chat with a stranger is not particularly welcome, <laughs> you see. But the fascinating thing about New York is if you can break through the shell, they're some of the friendliest, nicest people you want to see anywhere. But they've learned to put out that shell because you got to get something done. You got to go long distances to go from one visit to another or one task to another. And so everybody's in a hurry going somewhere. But once you get through the shell, it's more like the Philippines than you would think. So, yeah, perhaps the first step of mission is just know who you're dealing with. Know a little bit about the culture. Know a little bit about how people can best be reached. As I look at this verse, the question is there. It says, what does it tell us about God? It tells me that God is somebody who is eager for relationship. And he goes out in order to find it. It's not a God who is impassive, a God who can't be touched, but it is a God who is eagerly seeking that kind of relationship. And the question implies that he's interested in us, that he wants relationship with us. He wants relationship with people that maybe have not had a relationship with him before. And one thing I've noticed, if you were the stranger 
and you're stuck with them and you have to talk and you don't know what to say. The simplest thing is to ask a question. Nearly everybody on this earth loves to talk about themselves. So asking questions is a great way to get started. All right, Lou. Kind of makes me think of that ad that's running currently about, I think it's an insurance company where this guy gets on the elevator and there's a packed elevator and he's trying to engage everybody in conversation. And it's about don't become like your dad or your parents, you know. And I think there's also not only the cultural differences geographically, but there's also the age difference. Sometimes it can be a good thing and sometimes it can be more of a hindrance maybe. So I think, again, I have to be sensitive. I love to engage with people, but I can overdo it fairly easily on my own. And so I think to be sensitive and in tune with the Holy Spirit as to what does that person need, sometimes it isn't even a question because they just, maybe it's where they're at at the moment and just a gentle, quiet smile. Only the Holy Spirit knows where that other heart is. All right, Sherry. I know when people have tried to be intentional and approach me, sometimes it can be very difficult. And anyway, I don't enjoy it. But often I think it's because sometimes when we are intentional and reach out, it's for us. It's not really for them. And I think that makes a big difference and can be felt by the other person. If we are genuinely showing respect and watching out for signals as to what might be appropriate, or if we see a need that maybe we can quietly fill. I think the attitude that we have as we're attempting to do mission is really important, that it's about them and it's about God, and it's not about us or our own need to do mission. Well said. So in our reaching out, the question is, what is love? And if love is centered on the needs of the other, it's a very different reason for engaging than if there's a box you need to check today. You know, how many missionary visits did I have and things like that. All right, Michael. In the 18th and 19th century, particularly missionary work that was done, and this was true just about every denomination, went about it the wrong way. Instead of trying to learn the culture, they would go to say like the Polynesian islands, and then tell the people you're living the wrong way. You don't dress properly. You don't dress modestly, et cetera, et cetera. Margaret Mead wrote extensively about those kinds of failures. And to the credit of the Adventist church, their missionaries learn the culture first and try to learn the language. So when you show up, you'll fit in with the people rather than showing up saying, I'm going to tell you about God and you got to do it my way. That doesn't convince many people. It just doesn't work very well. But if you show them love and kindness and really an expression of God's love, that works best. All right, Peter. Well, my wife and I, we started a little health center in Nazareth, and we worked during three years for the Palestinian people. And then coming home, we did twice, three times a year for one week, a health expo in Morocco and in Tunisia, even in Turkey. My suggestion, well, first I have to say, I tried to record health talks and we had a radio station on the border between Israel and Lebanon, financed by Americans. And well, when we were finished and we wanted to start out, well, getting through the radio, they blew up the whole radio station. With this, you have to count. And on the other hand, what I want to say is, according to my experience, the best way of doing mission is simply to get there and start out a health work and also physical therapy. Because when you do physical therapy, you put your hand on the patient, you get a body contact with the patient. And in this way, you can talk to the patient and he will listen to you. And you build a partially very good friendship with those people. And I think this is the easiest way to do it. Thank you. Mm, yeah. And I think of the term that medical missionary work is the right arm of the gospel, that's an entering wedge in which people can expand their options in this world. We give them that opportunity. Let's go to number five. And it says, what was God's original purpose in creating the human race? And the text there is Hebrews chapter two and verses five to nine. Now God did not subject the coming world 
about which we are speaking to angels. But someone has testified somewhere. What are human beings that you are mindful of them or mortals that you care for them? You have made them for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. Now in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them, but we do see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. All right, let's take a closer look at this text a little bit. First of all, in verse 5, it says, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. So this text says, I think very plainly, God doesn't plan to put angels in charge of the universe at any future time. But instead, it quotes Psalm 8 and says, What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. So there in Psalm 8, it seems to be saying that while human beings are a little lower than the angels for a time, that God has great plans to put everything under human beings' feet. Now, that's Hebrews, okay? Keep your finger in Hebrews and go back with me to Psalm 8, because I did an intensive study of this psalm in both the Greek and the Hebrew and was really startled at what I found. And that helps to explain what's going on in Hebrews, I think, a little bit. So Psalm chapter 8 but I just want to point it to people. So Psalm 8, verse 3 says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So I went into this one a little lower than human beings. And it actually says in verse 5, in the Hebrew, a little lower than God. Elohim. Yeah, it's different from Hebrews. It's a little lower than God. Well, where did the Hebrews come up with a little lower than the angels? Well, you go to the Septuagint, the Greek translation, and it says lower than the angels for a little while. The Hebrew says a little lower than God. The Greek of the same verse says lower than the angels for a little while. So Hebrews is kind of putting both of those concepts together, the concept of a little lower than God, uh, the concept of lower than the angels for a while. Both of those concepts seem to have been absorbed in the early church. So what I take from that is that human beings were made lower than God, even lower than the angels for a while. But the whole idea is that human beings are next in line to God, that God designed human beings to be more like him than any other creature. Of angels, it's never said that they're in the image of God. Of angels, it's never said that they can procreate. So human beings are unique and different in God's plan. Coming back to Hebrews chapter 2, it quotes the psalm, you have made him a little lower than the angels. That's a singular, but it means humanity as a whole. You have crowned humanity with glory and honor and put everything under humanity's feet. So it's speaking of the human race as a whole. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him, humanity. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him, humanity. So this is talking solely about human beings, that God has a plan to raise humanity to the highest place under God in the universe. And what Satan succeeded was interrupting that plan for a time. And we have this emergency, as some have called it. But notice what happens in verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made, what? A little lower than the angels now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Do you notice how this singular, he, him, referring about the human race, but suddenly 
in verse 9, it switched to he, him, Jesus. What's the connection there? It's because Jesus, when he came to this earth, became a human being. Jesus became a little lower than the angels so that one day he could raise humanity up to God's throne. He has incorporated humanity into divinity. It's a stunning thing. And so you see in Revelation 3.21 that the one who overcomes will sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. It seems to me if we take Hebrews and these other texts seriously, God has a staggering purpose for the human race. And so mission, the stakes in mission are perhaps higher than we realized. That God is seeking to train a whole race of beings that will one day rule the universe, sit with him on the throne. It's an amazing and a staggering thing. The human race was created for the purpose of assisting God in the management of the universe, to be kings and priests under God. And Jesus Christ, as a human being, has already raised humanity to the highest place. That's what Hebrews is saying. And those who are redeemed will follow after. All right, John and Rita. I think you said just then that humanity had been incorporated into God. But is it not more the other way around, that in Jesus, God was incorporated into humanity? Because is that not what God wants to restore? And my answer is yes. <laughs> yes, that goes both ways. But we've generally thought about God being incorporated into humanity, but Hebrews is taking it the other way, and that God has a plan to incorporate humanity to the highest level in the universe. It's very important if you're going to be given a huge responsibility. The problem with huge responsibility is it goes to people's heads. When you become a king, you start behaving like a king, which is often like a spoiled brat. So if God is going to entrust the universe to the human race, then we've got some real training to do, right? Because to be able to handle that level of responsibility, let's say, I don't know how many human beings there are, how many galaxies are there? If helping God rules the universe means each of us gets a galaxy, that's a pretty heady responsibility. Jesus said, if you're faithful in little things, I'll put you over something big. What would Jesus think of as big? That's where galaxy comes to mind, you see. So this is a staggering vision, I think, that the author of Hebrews has for the human race. And it indicates that the things we do in mission have huge implications, far beyond simply saving somebody for the kingdom. Arthur. I'm also wondering with this grand plan that God has for humanity is not only about the future, but also about the initial intended purpose for which God created humanity, maybe in the context of the great controversy. I do not know whether this will be logical, but I'm just going to read a verse. The other one, I'm not able to retrieve it, but I know Paul talks about us being like in a theater and the universe watching us, then I'll also read Ephesians 3, verse 10 and 11. God's plan was that through the church, the various aspects of his wisdom will be revealed to the rulers and authorities in heaven. This was in accordance with God's eternal purpose that he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the right text. That's the right one. Yeah. All right. So now I'm thinking maybe could God have also envisioned to bring to existence the human order? Because I'm assuming his ways are beyond our reach. But could it be that if he could create an, an order of beings who could be observed in this little microcosm or whatever you can call it, and God meets these beings to demonstrate to others what God is exactly like? That's why maybe he puts Adam and Eve in charge of other lower forms of life. And God is trying to demonstrate exactly what he is like in the context of the accusations that the devil has leveled against him. Of course, we know the story. We failed in the assignment, but Jesus comes in again 
as a human to do exactly what we were created to do. So I wanted to find out whether that is plausible. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think so. And what you're saying makes me think, is it possible that it is only those who have experienced sin, who know it's terrible devastation, that could be trusted to carry huge responsibility without becoming selfish and crazy? Just a thought. Yeah. Dan, go ahead. Carrying on from what has just been said, I think it's going to be hard for us to get a big head if everyone knows that we were adopted, first of all, into the position we're in. And more than that, if they know what our biography is and how we have screwed up all over the place and still being adopted into this family. So I think it's going to be relatively easy to be humble when we're in heaven with the memory that everyone has. And I think, like Henry said, the one thing that we will be a symbol of is sort of a case study in God's grace. And I think that's something that as we learn more about what God has done for us, I think we will be able to explain that better and better than we probably can right now. I know that sometimes when I think about my career and the opportunities that have been given to me, I often say to the younger people, I wonder how many opportunities I've missed. And I suspect that when I get to heaven, I will see that I have missed a lot more opportunities than I had the insight to grab. And so I think our story will be magnified when you get to heaven, because when we see things in this proper context, we'll really understand what God's grace was all about, this full content. And don't you think the witness that will preserve the universe from ever falling into sin again will be a witness that's telling your story, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And the beauty of the millennium is there's a thousand years for us to process that story, as I've suggested in other contexts, that God will provide a biography of our lives, a full, complete biography with the motives, the background, who we came from, what our parents' issues were. It says we will be able to study and understand ourselves as we rarely can in this life today. And that will not simply be so we have a cushier time in eternity, having dealt with the issues, but because God has big plans and needs a thousand years of education, I think, Alyssa, you'll probably be a teacher and I'll be a student during those thousand years, but there's going to be a lot of education going on. So God has a big purpose and a plan that's exciting to consider. Now, for the sake of time, let me just walk through some things here. Mission in a real sense starts with Genesis 12, where God says to Abraham, in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. All right. So God calls Abraham to make a difference in all the nations of the world. And Terry, if you would, would you read those three verses, Genesis 12, 1 to 3? Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now it's clear as you work through Genesis that blessing is relationship with God. Abraham was promised, I will be your God, and you will be like a son to me, that God would be with them. And in the lesson, it goes on to show that in Matthew, what name is Jesus given? Matthew 1.23, it's Emmanuel, God with us. So this concept of relationship with God, that's what mission is all about. As someone else said earlier, it is knowing God and reaching out to each other relationship. That's what mission ideally is all about. Not a program, but people, getting to know people. Genesis 28, 15, Terry, number six, Genesis 28, 15. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. All right, so here he promises the patriarchs, in this case, Jacob, I will be with you. He said it to Abraham before. He said it to Isaac. He said it to Jacob, I will be with you. Exodus 29, 43 to 45. I will meet the Israelites there, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. 
I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the Israelites and I will be their God. All right, so we see this sense of God dwelling with his people. Sin separated humanity from God. We saw that back in Genesis 3. And God had to come in a mission toward humanity. Then God comes in a mission to Abraham and use him as a conduit of that mission. He does the same with the patriarchs and in Exodus 29 with the Israelites. So the concept of God desiring relationship, reaching out in relationship, this is God's mission to us. But I want to show you something in Matthew. First of all, Matthew 1, 18 to 23. Matthew 1, 18 to 23. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. In the book of Matthew, if anything is worth saying, it's worth saying twice. That's one thing I've learned. Matthew is different from the other Gospels in this way, that he tends to double everything. And for example, you all know the story of the ten virgins, right? The wise and the foolish ones, okay? Well, if it's worth saying in Matthew, it's worth saying twice. Where else in the book are the wise and the foolish contrasted? In Matthew 7. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the wise man builds his house on the rock and the foolish man on the sand. So that concept of wise and foolish was so important to Matthew, he said it twice. And you can see this all through the gospel. And these are things that are unique to Matthew. You won't find them in the other gospels. Where else in Matthew, can anybody think of it? Where else does he use this concept, God with us? Can anyone think of another place in Matthew? It's worth saying. It's worth saying twice. Do you remember the end of the book? Jesus says, go you into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So Matthew begins, God with us, ends, I am with you. And you won't find those statements in any other gospel. So this is part of Matthew's unique mission, that the mission of God is to come together with us. Now, in Matthew, it actually sometimes is worth saying three times. So turn to Matthew 18, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. There's the same language. I am with them. Matthew 1, God with us. Matthew 28, I am with you. Matthew 18, I am with them. So three times in Matthew, you have this unique statement of presence. We've often thought of mission as getting people to have membership in an organization, and that has great value. But mission, the way it is conceived in Scripture, is about God in relationship with us. And God's mission to us is to restore relationship when it's lost to maintain it when it's found. So we see in this birth narrative in Matthew, we see this important concept from the patriarchs said again, God is with us. All right, let's read John 1 in number seven of your handout, John 1, 14 to 18. And the question is, what does Christ's incarnation tell us about God's mission to us? John 1, 14 to 18. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, 
full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son who is close to the father's heart, who has made him known. So here in John, you see this whole thing about God incorporating humanity. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It was one thing for God to take a walk in the garden, not knowing exactly where God's home was on the planet at this point, but God meets them in a garden. But how much more that God desired relationship with humanity that he meets us in flesh. God actually moves in, incorporates humanity into divinity. That's an absolutely amazing concept. And over those next years, God was able to reveal more of himself and his mission than he had done in the previous thousands of years. Those three and a half years of Jesus' ministry had more revelation than all the rest put together. A question for you now, why did God wait so long? If the incarnation of Jesus was the goal all along, why 4,000 years or more, depending on which biblical account you follow? All right, we'll go to Nancy. I believe it was to answer that third question, that obedience that springs from fear causes the heart of a rebel. And it wasn't until those 4,000 years that he had a group of people who were completely obedient to the books. No idolatry anymore, no Sabbath breaking so-called anymore. And yet they demonstrated how they put God on the cross and ran home and wanted him dead before Sabbath so that they could keep this special holy day. It was insane, but the universe got it. And that knowledge is going to keep the peace and loyalty in the universe forever. God will never run his universe on force and fear. Never. It doesn't work. So you are saying that God waited until there was a group of human beings willing to kill him? No, to demonstrate the truth. That okay. Why couldn't he have done that earlier? I don't think, from my understanding, he didn't have a group of people who were completely keeping the law in a way that had never been done before. They've come back from Babylon. They've gone through Nehemiah. And they were really, it was a unique time of commandment okay. keepers. So you're suggesting that one reason for God to wait is he needed a people who would be so obedient in the wrong way, perhaps? Exactly. That they were showing as a group an obedience that doesn't work. And it just doesn't work. Why he couldn't use force to run the universe forever. Like the flood kept us alive and history going, but it didn't create any great followers. They believed in God, but they didn't love and trust him. They built the Tower of Babel. So from what I understand is the universe was watching and they keep saying, well, why doesn't a God do something? Especially in the time of judges, things were just terrible. And yet God didn't step in and do anything. He let history run its course. And because these questions had to be answered, it took a long time. It took a long time to answer these questions. Well, we want things now. We've got microwaves and fast food drive throughs but God is willing to take thousands of years to, to secure the peace of the universe. It's just incredible patience on his part and self-sacrifice. Thank you for wrestling that through. You were working on something important there, and you stuck with it. Thank you. Anyone have a different perspective or something to add on to what Nancy said? All right, Rita. I think what we have in the Jewish nation at the time, because I think we have to say the time and the place, that the Jewish nation believed that they were God's chosen, their special people, that it was their right to inherit the kingdom, and that they were expecting a Messiah to free them from the tyranny of the Romans, but, and they kept all of the laws, they thought that keeping the laws would get them there. They believed that they, when I say they, I'm really talking about the leaders who set the tone, if you like. Um, they believed they were perfect, that God was their king. They were waiting for God to be their king. Yet at the time of Christ's crucifixion, they showed their real colors, didn't they? And said, we have no king 
but Caesar. So they, at that point, completely denied any connection with God. All right, thank you. Michael? Starting with Abraham, they were monotheistic in a polytheistic society. Everything around them, they believed in multiple gods. But they didn't just suddenly, here's Abraham, we're the chosen people, and we're going to live faithfully ever after. They didn't. They were regarded as a stiff-necked people. And then the first commandment, you will have no other gods before me. In other words, it reflected there were other gods. And this is the same people. They get out of Egypt. They're rescued from the flood of the Red Sea. And what do they do? They start worshiping a golden calf while Moses goes up on Sinai. And so I don't think it's just the idea that they were a faithful people because many times they revealed that they weren't faithful. And when God becomes incarnate in the form of Jesus the Christ, he doesn't come in glory. He's the new appointed king or anything. He comes among the lowliest people there were. I listened to John Jones at uh, La Sierra said that we must translated the Aramaic into Greek. Joseph wasn't a carpenter. Joseph was at best a handyman. That's really what he was. He was on the very lowest rung of the ladder, the economic ladder. Why would Jesus choose that life? And I think it was for this humbling experience was a lesson for each and every one of us. It showed God's immense love for us. Thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing that. One thing that is mentioned in the book Desire of Ages is that something special about that time was there was basically one language and culture in much of the ancient world at that time, the so-called Hellenistic culture, the culture of ancient Greece. Rome conquered Greece militarily, but Greece conquered Rome philosophically and linguistically, etc. And because of that, the gospel could spread rapidly from one country to the next because they were the same language, same basic culture. And I've sometimes wondered if we're not entering into a similar period today. You have basically one language, English, which seems to largely be accepted almost anywhere you go. There's only one country in which I've been totally bewildered because there's no English anywhere, and that's South Korea. <laughs> See the road signs, everything, we're all in a very foreign-looking language. But in, in most places, you can get by with English. And the secular postmodern culture is increasingly reaching into every society around the world through television, media, internet, uh, etc. So perhaps we're living at a time like the time of Jesus when the entire world is being prepared to make rapid moves at the end of time. Dan? I wanted to amplify what you were saying and saying Rome occupied much of what we would call the then known world. But in fact, there was a very brisk trade between China and Rome, in which the Romans were very desirous of their silk. And so there's a very robust trade. And so when you were mentioning that, it was possible to spread the message actually throughout the whole civilized world, which is all the way into China, so that the possibilities were much greater than any of us could probably imagine. And some of the trade routes actually went down into India, too, so that the world was much more interconnected than we're led to believe by sometimes history. The world was really very much more one that any of us might imagine otherwise. Well, there is some evidence that Thomas made it as far as India, and some suggest China. That there's a couple of ancient monuments that could be understood as being an influence, very early influence of Christianity in China as well. Let's go to the last one as we close. Throughout the quarter, the lesson invites readers to engage intentionally in God's mission. Now, we've raised the question that maybe intention is not always the wisest approach, but one thing I've learned about mission is you try anything once, and if it doesn't work, try something else. <laughs> so uh, to have some intention may be helpful, and here's the intention that's being suggested for this week, to experience God at work in real-life situations. So there's two challenges. One, pray every day of the coming week for God to open your heart to be part of his mission. If there are opportunities, we won't see them unless we're open to see them. So to pray every day for God to open your heart to be part of his mission. And number two, learn the name of someone in your life 
that you don't already know and then begin praying for that person every day. And as I was thinking about that, a couple doors down, there's some Chinese folk and I see them almost every day just, you know, walking past when we're, we're out for our morning exercise and so on. We greet each other and we smile. I don't know their names. So I think that might not be a bad idea to get connected. So the suggestions are there for some practical ways to exercise mission. I leave you to consider those. And we'll close with Michael. I was just going to follow up with something you said. In Roman society, if you wanted to criticize another Roman, the common phrase was, he knows no Greek. <laughs> okay, that's right. So, you know, the Greek language and culture, it certainly went as far as Afghanistan due to the conquests of Alexander the Great. But as far as the biblical world was concerned, it was pretty much Hellenistic at that point in time. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, we are taking on the concept of mission, and it has never been easier and never been harder than it is today. And so we invite your presence with us throughout this quarter as we seek to understand your mission and help us to be very personal in our approach, that we might see your call in our own personal environment. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.